Hey there, this is part two of my master's thesis on saint stories and the self. This is the second section of my thesis where I will be discussing Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of modernity and their deconstruction through the archetypes of the siren, the mast, and the resolution. Let's talk then about what accounts for the gap between modernity's moral aspirations and the motivation to act upon them. This is where we can really make use of the criticisms of Adorno and Horkheimer. According to their reading of modernity, early modern thinkers like Bacon and Voltaire sought to bring about self-actualization through human liberation. From the perspective of their revolutionary program, human beings were bound by the chains of religious, mythological, and non-scientific ways of thinking, and these were one and the same for many of them, for many of these Enlightenment thinkers. To free humanity from the constrictions of superstitions, they sought to disenchant the world by simply being real. They claimed that the ancient Xenophanes was the first modern, deriding the, quote, multitude of deities because they were but replicas of the men who produced them, end quote. So therefore, it was simply common sense for them to deny the power of gods that, not who, were no more than the works of human hands. And this is where we begin to see the, the breakdown, what could have explained uh, some sort of peace in Socrates' time, is now being disallowed within modernity's frame of reference. The scientists of the, and thinkers of the early Enlightenment did not need to appeal to pre-Socratic philosophies like Xenophanes, um, this xenophonetic common sense, to bring the final blow down upon the heads of the gods. The past, the pillars of the Parthenon, and the domes of the great cathedrals crumbled under the contemporary power of delicate microscopes, blown glass test tubes, and math. The scientific method reversed theosis and began to liberate society from the mysteries of the gods and enthrone in their places the pillar of una scientia universalis. So not only could the results of arithmetic be reduced and algebraic formulas factored, but the remainders of old religion and old metaphysics could also be fractioned, canceled out by the principles of positivism. Modern uh, positivism sees that anything not numbers becomes illusion. From the perspective of modern nominalism, the practice of encoding, categorizing, and controlling controlling variables, objects, and concepts by tagging them with names can be viewed as divine, as a, quote, sovereignty over existence in the countenance of the Lord and Master and in command, something akin to let there be light or let there be electricity, the steam engine, or the telegraph. Those quotes in there were from Adorno and Horkheimer. So what then is the problem? Should we not seek command over nature to prevent hunger and disease or to promote well-being and the common good? And further, what is the problem if these new fields of study marginalize God, gods, and the myth? The problems and dangers become clear once one compares the Enlightenment project with that of Xenophanes. From the perspective of the Enlightenment, Xenophanes did not go far enough. Right, it's simply it's one thing to simply get the gods off their 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 pillars, right, or out of the public view. 
he merely banished the gods from his view, but positivism and nominalism set out to accomplish something bolder still. The abstraction of all things, thereby conferring a divine freedom and power to humankind. The means to this end is measurement, because what can be measured can be reproduced, automated, scaled, and synthesized. Nominalization leaves existence with no voice and no defense against the controlling logoi of human godlike galvanization. Advances in quantum physics and pure math have finally made this end possible, at least so it appears on the horizon. And now, everything from planetary motion to human behavior can be made into formulas. All of this depends on abstraction. But the, extra uh, the abstraction of all things entails the abolition of the self. Details are not needed in this perfect world. Background stories, life experiences, even first and last names, and religion too, do not matter if people can be numbered. Hence the irony of the modern technocratic paradigm. It relegated to oblivion the very self it sought to liberate. Horkheimer and Adorno find in the story of Odysseus and the Sirens the origin and essence of Western rationality and its relegation of the self. They retell this story in Dialectic of Enlightenment, and in doing so, they want us to step into the shoes uh, of sort of this, this new telling of the story. It'll make sense when we read this relatively lengthy uh, citation from it. They say, Civilization's road was that of obedience and labor, over which fulfillment shines forth perpetually, but only as elusive appearance, as devitalized beauty. The mind of Odysseus, inimical both to his own death and to his own happiness, is aware of this. He knows only two possible ways to escape. One of them he prescribes for his men. He plugs their ears with wax, and they must row with all their strength. Whoever would survive must not hear the temptation of that which is unrepeatable or irremediable, and he is able to survive only by being unable to hear it. The other possibility Odysseus chooses for himself. He listens, but while bound impotently to the mast, the greater the temptation the more he has his bonds tightened. The bonds with which he has irremediably tied himself to practice also keep the sirens away from practice. Their temptation is neutralized and becomes a mere object of contemplation in, in a very mere sense, right? Not contemplation in, a, um, in the Christian tradition, this deeply spiritual thing. No, he just means something that you're kind of looking at in this voyeuristic way. They continue, the prisoner is present at a concert, an inactive eavesdropper like later concert goers, and his spirited call for liberation fades like applause. Thus the enjoyment of art and manual labor break apart as the world of prehistory is left behind. So what's going on here in this, in this, uh, this reading of Odysseus by Adorno and Horkheimer? In a way, they're talking about what happens to the modern person when they run up against myth, when they run up against the gods. In Odysseus's case, in the actual canonical telling of the story, obviously the sirens would not be a good thing to, to listen to. But 
what Adorno and Horkheimer are trying to point out to us is that something like this, you could say in a way there is this good out there, there's this myth out there, and it's something that is worthy of our contemplation, like in a deep sense, not in the sense that, not in the way that Adorno and Horkheimer use the word, again, the voyeuristic way, something worth listening to, and something from the deep of us calls to, to listen to it, to be enamored by the beauty of this mythological song. But there are two ways to get around this. For whatever reason, there's something productive to be done. There's something that uh, must be produced for Odysseus, right, in this case. And therefore, the call of the gods or demigods or myth, broadly speaking, is something that must be shut out. So what Odysseus does, and, and, and notice how they talk about it here, um, he, he makes his, his men, he prescribes his men to block their ears. So one way of dealing with the power of myth as it comes to us in this modern world, it would simply block our ears. We, we stop it from ever coming to us before it could even tempt us by its beauty, right? Um, that's one way of doing it. And modern culture has many ways of doing that, right? There's distraction, there's work, there's uh, reification from work that could be beautiful, um, there, there's, there's a consumeristic mentality. All of these things can block us from the world. There's this other thing that Odysseus does that maybe in some ways is, is worse. He takes this voyeuristic attitude. He, he, he takes the, this beautiful wild myth and he locks it up in a cage for his own enjoyment, right? So he doesn't block his ears in the myth. And the way that Adorno and Horkheimer tell it is what, what he's done here is he has stopped the action, the praxis is what they say, the action of what myth causes us to do. And again, I want to remind us, obviously in the canonical telling of the story, what, what, what the sirens would have wanted him to do would have led to his death. And this is sort of this extra layer, actually, of what Adorno and Horkheimer are doing. What modernity kind of tells us is to listen to myth is, is to be consumed by this evil thing out there that you can't trust, right? So in a way, modernity has made the good of myth into this evil siren. Does that make sense? I think that's, that's really the, the point of what's going on here in Adorno and Horkheimer, and I think it needs a little bit of exposition for it to make sense. So according to this modern reading of Odysseus, to be a hero, again from this rereading that Adorno and Horkheimer are giving to us, to be a hero means to find one's self by means of liberation from the siren's song of nature and the divine. Odysseus takes advantage, and I mean that in the worst sense, he takes advantage of a loophole. Quote, he can listen without listening, and so instrumentalize that enlightenment which offers resistance. Right? There's this thing that myth does to us. It's, it's not just we can listen to it. It's, it's like this, um, this prisoner that they mentioned who's trapped. He's listening, but he can't do anything about... He can't get up and dance to this music, right? He's, he's stuck. What's happened here is a demythologizing, a domestication. And it has replaced the actualized and connected human self with this competition to objectivize and disassociate the entities, the force, the, compel the compulsion, the resistance, in a good way, of myth. And this is the section on Adorno and Horkheimer. This section here establishes um, 
the framework and sort of the language of what we mean when we're talking about modernity's problems. In this world that we live in, we are able to see, we identify from somewhere within ourselves beauty, the, the beauty of the siren's song. And what modernity has done for us is that it's told us that that siren's song is just the voice of a killer. The reality is for us, and what Adorno and Horkheimer seem to be telling us, and other people within this, this dialectical tradition, especially some of um, Adorno and Horkheimer's um, colleagues, like Walter Benjamin, for instance. Um, let's talk more then about Adorno and Horkheimer's critique. We'll keep on reading uh, just to sum up the section here, when, when Odysseus encounters these primal, power, primal powers that are neither uh, domesticated or able to be contained, he doesn't find it easy. Even though he is this heroic character of sorts, he's, he's this godlike being, um, he can never engage in direct conflict with the exotically surviving mythic forces but has to recognize the status of sacrificial ceremonies in which he is constantly involved. He dare not contravene them. So we take this to mean there is a set of rules that Odysseus has to play by, right? If he wants to get in good with the gods to use them, as it were, he has to offer them sacrifice. Um, but what does the sacrifice look like? Let's read. He is a sacrifice for the abrogation of sacrifice. His dominative renunciation as a struggle with myth represents a society that no longer needs renunciation and dominion, which gains mastery over itself, not in order to coerce itself and others, but in expiation. So we see him sacrificing in a way to placate the gods, as it were, but we also see that this sacrifice, this giving up that he does, is something that will give him power. Again, we see this in modernity. There is a sacrifice, to use this spiritually loaded language, there is a sacrifice of maybe something that we liked or appreciated. Sorry, Dawkins, we're, you know, we're glad that you liked that world of, of religion, but it's worth it for us to, 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 to put this on the altar and, and, and get rid of it. it. The expiation from the sins that this religious impulse have, 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 have caused, you know, it, it's dealt with, it's gone. But what's the issue here? There's sort of a meaninglessness then that's given to sacrifice then sacrifice becomes something commodified something something that is commercial something that is it's like a computer there's an in and there's an out there's this um, transaction that comes of it and obviously within some religious circles that is how sacrifice is, is looked at and perhaps we could say the same of the of, of, of Greek and Roman myths as well but <laughs> the quote-unquote myth of modernity, we've experienced this too. So let's keep reading. Only consciously contrived adaptation to nature brings nature under the control of the physically weaker. The ratio which supplants mimesis is not simply its counterpart. It is itself mimesis, mimesis unto death the subjective spirit which cancels the animation of nature, that is this uh, response to the siren's song, can master a despiritualized nature, 
only by imitating its rigidity and despirited, uh, despiritualizing itself in turn. What does this mean? Well, to use something that sounds mythical, spiritual, or religious, no one can serve two masters. There's always a master somewhere. Odysseus makes this point clear. His men didn't even have the option of, of tying themselves to the mast or tying themselves somewhere else to, 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 to get the pleasure of listening to the sirens, right? There is still a control that's required. The violence of modernity is still one that requires human beings to lose something essential. Maybe not directly their lives in religious wars, but there is still a loss of something deep. There's still a cutting off, a removal to a natural response of the human person. I want to continue reading a little bit more. Renunciation, the principle of a bourgeois disillusionment, the outward schema of the intensification of sacrifice, is already present in that estimation of the ratio of forces which anticipates survival as so to speak dependent on the concession of one's own defeat. In a way, they're saying here, modernity has all, always kind of understood the logic of itself. So on one hand, it can decry the issues that come. Again, viable, uh, true, uh, licit issues that, that it has with this kind of um, a mythological worldview, while at the same time admitting within itself a violence that is essential to it. Again, with the issue of sacrifice, sacrifice often involves some sort of violence. And, and then here, to understand that, to understand that what he's doing to his men is a kind of violence as well. There's something that they desire in their heart, but to protect them, he must reach over them. He must dominate them. He has the power to get wax and he has the power to, 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 to apply it to them. This power comes up in, in different ways and shapes and forms. Uh, and, is, and is especially, again, the, the altar in, in today's time is still an altar of violence. This creates in one way or another something like a totalitarian regime. To continue quoting from Adorno and Horkheimer, liberated from, the same, liberated from the control of the same class which tied the 19th century businessman to Immanuel Kant's respect and mutual love, fascism, which by its iron discipline saves its subject, subject peoples the trouble of moral feelings, no longer needs to uphold any disciplines. In contradistinction to the categorical imperative... Uh, Kant's idea, of course, um, and all the more in accordance with pure reason, it treats men as things, as the loci or loci of modes of behavior. Think about what this means then. So for this modern society to have its effect on the world, apart from myth, again, where the myth could have been this, this cosmia against the acosmia, there still has to be something controlling whether it's Kantian ethics and metaphysics or it's a fascist control, something is still required. Um, again, if there is an end goal for modernity to, to find some sort of response to these issues, um, it hasn't been found. This is why they say, 
It is the hand of philosophy that wrote it on the wall, from Kant's critique of, uh, to, to Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. Um, the, the, the latest span of uh, modern philosophy has run up against these, these problems. In today's time, we've lost myth, but we have come up against the, the regime of what is called the culture industry. As Adorno and Horkheimer state, the sociological theory that the loss of the support of objectively established religion, the dissolution of the last remnants of pre-capitalism, together with technological and social differentiation or specialization, have led to cultural chaos, is disproved every day. <laughs> what are they saying here? For now, culture, for culture now impresses the same stamp, think of Bernays, on everything. Films, radio, and magazines make up a system which is uniform as a whole and in every part. Even the aesthetic activities of political opposites are one in their enthusiastic obedience to the rhythm of the iron system. This establishment of a new culture industry under the guise of being something that gives relinquish, relinquishment to these outdated norms. Well, as they say at the beginning, they kind of have this turn of phrase here. Well, the loss of religion, right? Uh, there's going to be chaos now, right? This is something you might expect from sort of a fundamentalist religious argument. We, we hear this sometime. If there wasn't, there wasn't God, right? I would be a mass murderer or something like this. There is a megachurch preacher that said something along those lines. And we, we recognize that as being maybe not quite right because there is still an ordering principle. And yet, of course, the ordering principle is the culture industry, films, radio, magazines, new media, all of these things that take us away and require us yet somehow at the same time to encounter our humanness. But again, with either wax in our ears or with ropes tying us to a mast. I want to make sure that this, this point is clear because this is something of an archetype that will appear throughout the rest of the sections. There's an issue um, that came about through an attempt to remove oneself from the iron shackles of religiosity and myth, broadly speaking. But that came with its own myth, its own industry, as it were, that still requires order and still requires a totalizing influence over these other things. It's one that has not removed the issue of violence and in fact stops ears and ties hands. And that's how we close this first section uh, following the introduction. We'll move on from this deconstruction to a reconstruction through the work of Charles Taylor in part three.